You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And so, the die is cast, ladies and gentlemen. The fix is in, and then we are all stuck with a tax rise that no one really wanted, that won't do any good, and most certainly won't do what it is supposed to do. Uh, that is to fix the NHS and, of course, the social care system. Uh, because the 1.25% hike in national insurance sailed through Parliament last night with very little resistance from some Tory backbenchers. There was meant to be a rebellion, but only five of them could bring themselves to actually vote against it. Uh, 37 of them uh, managed to abstain. Um, the money is meant to shore up the NHS and sort out the care home funding fiasco, but it's pretty unlikely to do either. Even the Institute for Fiscal Studies has come out today and said that the NHS can never live within its means. It will always need more money and it will never really work very efficiently. Other government departments are likely to be cut by several billion at the same time. So where does that leave us all? This morning, I'll be asking John Rental, the Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, if Boris Johnson has done enough to quell the rebellion that was threatened within the ranks. 37 of those Tories, of course, abstaining, apparently had permission. Some of them did anyway. We shall see about that. Not least because Sir Keir Starmer's opposition yesterday was pretty lib. He voted against it, as did the Labour Party. But they haven't really got another plan, have they? And when you get down to it, Boris Johnson's reasoning is, well, at least we've got a plan. (laughs) It's great, isn't it? Marvellous. Fantastic. Are you happy to pay more tax when you know it isn't actually going to change anything? And are you one of those people who's just gone back to the office for the first time in over a year? Because I heard some very odd conversations today, and I'd love to hear from some of you as well. 0344-499-1000. We'll be looking at Home Secretary Priti Patel's latest gambit on the illegal migrant crisis. Apparently she's had a great idea. Only the other day, just over a thousand people landed on our shores illegally. Now she says she's just going to send them back. (laughs) Well, shouldn't she have done that in the first place? Apparently we couldn't do that before, but now we can. Go figure. Alp Mehmet's going to join us for Migration Watch. Also, uh, we're going to be looking into this story from KPMG this morning. Apparently they want to hire more people from the working classes. I'm not sure how they're going to work that one out. You're going to be asked, apparently, when you go for an interview, what your dad does for a living and what your mother does for a living. And if you don't like answering that, then presumably you're not working class. I've no idea how it's going to work. Maybe you can tell me. Are you working class? Who is a working class person these days? Don't ask Keir Starmer, he doesn't know either. 0344 499 1000, you're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning, a very warm welcome indeed into the studio, Mr. John Rental. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I'm enjoying your world weary cynicism Thank you. about absolutely. Would you mind just everything. moving slightly closer to the microphone? I know you're sitting there lounging back I'm as, lounging. If, we're, as if we're in the Garrick Club. <laughs> But, you know, I know that's that's all very well for you to do. But but so I'm actually quite bored now talking about the social care bill. And obviously so are most of the newspapers because they did it all sort of yesterday yeah. um, and the day before. Um, and so by the time we've now got through to the point that it's actually happening uh, and, the, and the tax rise takes place, what, in next April or something? Yes. Um, nobody's really that interested, are they? 
Well, this is a very interesting um, poll in the Daily Mail today, which mm. suggests that you know, the public is split down the middle, really. Yeah. Um, it's sort of 40-40, for and against. Um, but that's on the principle of the thing. I mean, I think I think people are very happy to put up taxes uh, to pay for the NHS as long as uh, somebody else is paying. But, but also, uh, yeah, next but April, we'll see if people actually like the yeah, money coming out of their own pay packet. It will be quite expensive for quite a few people who are going to end up paying 2.5% because of the way that it's been structured. So, yeah. you know, that's going to oh, hurt. It's a, it's a big chunk. It's yeah. one of the biggest tax rises in, uh, in political history. Yeah, and surely to now have the highest tax um, sort of take ever since the Second World War for a, for a Conservative government, for a so-called libertarian prime minister, is pretty bizarre. Well, uh, that's how politics works, isn't it? I mean, uh, Boris Johnson is a uh, uh, a, a shapeshifter, mm. an ideological shape, shapeshifter, um, who uh, is going with the flow of public opinion, uh, which is tending towards the view that uh, we need to tax more and, and, and spend more on uh, public services. Most people would rather that other people paid the taxes, yes. but they recognise that taxes do have to go up. I mean, we're an ageing population. The, the demands on the NHS are growing. Uh, social care is a real We're also a, real a growing problem. population, which brings us as well to the Pretty Patel situation, because we are now growing, We apparently we're told, somewhere like 500 to 700,000 a year in terms of the immigration here. Well, I thought uh, I thought a million uh, Central Europeans had gone home during the coronavirus. Well, I was talking pandemic, to a migration so. expert the other day, and I'm not talking about illegal migration, I'm talking about migration in general. Immigration in this country, netto, as yeah. it were, is between 500 and 700,000. It has been for the last 10 years. Well, yeah, but except that for the past eighteen months, it's it's gone right back down again because uh, people. Well, it doesn't look like that. Driving around London, it looks as though we are absolutely chock a block full of people because nobody can go anywhere. Well, (laughs) I'm not sure that's quite right, Mike. But well, there's more people. There's definitely more people here than there were ten years ago. Well, of course, yes. No, certainly the population's uh, gone up, and and that that is a a good thing in in one sense because the economy needs more young people to. uh, It's a good thing. as long as the, um, the the administration of the economy moves along with it, i.e. the number of schools is increased, the number of houses is increased, the number Absolutely. of hospitals, the number of roads, all of those things that you need well, to, to, to make it work. And you need to put up taxes in order to pay for all that. So, well, very well, possibly so. Or you need to waste less money on other things, perhaps. Well, that's uh, that's always I mean, that's the age old, to be wished. That's the age-old conversation, isn't it? Yeah, but and, and I don't think people mind... Uh, the, the population increasing as long as people feel that the, there's a sense that the government is in control of immigration policy mm. and that's why Priti Patel's in such problem in, yes. in, in such difficulty because uh, you know if, if you could see people uh, arriving on Kent beaches every day uh, that that suggests that the government is not in control in very large numbers now because it is a, a proper organized criminal business and it's an enterprise now it's not just a few people kind of turning up in Calais and going do you fancy going over today you know yeah. it's literally by the thousands <laughs> I mean, well, I said yes. I said the other day, they might as well rename it Britney Ferries and just get a great big ferry and bring everybody on the same on the same boat. Oh well, that's what they can't do because yeah. that would be a seaworthy vessel, and there would be no uh, no problem with turning that round. Because right. you wouldn't be you wouldn't. I mean, the reason there's this business about turning turning things around is you can't turn around a you know sort of inflatable swimming pool mm. or something that right. somebody's somebody's paddling across mm. the, the channel across in because that's not safe. Right. So. Uh, uh, but but if it's a larger it's a, if it's a larger boat that is safe then uh, then apparently Pretty Patel's got legal advice yeah. 
that she is uh, actually allowed to turn them mm. around, point them back into yeah. uh, French waters. Well, could but she not turn around the RNLI boats then? Because they're all coming in on those now. Because every time an RNLI boat goes out to take them in off the off the dinghy, put them on the RNLI yeah. boat and protect me. Unless it's, you might think it's a flippant point, it's not. Um, if they're now coming in on what would be considered a seaworthy vessel, yes. i.e., an RNLI boat, we can turn that round. Well, that is that is. A, Couldn't you? I, I look forward to you arguing that case in in, in well, court. That'd be that'd be I, ex- I, well, excellent. It's not that different, is it, from a ferry? No, because the RNLI is not in an arm of the government no. so uh, you're absolutely right if a if a border patrol vessel yes uh, uh, came across an rnli boat then yes i think i think under i think, under I think we've hit on the new legal advice <laughs> it would be entitled to turn it around i think we've hit on the answer superb now yesterday uh, you would have watched with some interest as i did i was quite enjoyed question time promise questions yesterday it was back, it to, was back, back to, to its old raucous best you know uh, and and actually boris clearly benefits from that he was on fire, he was on form, and I'd spent most of the first part of the morning slagging him off. But then thought, actually, this is a, <laughs> a reviewer performance from the Prime Minister. Um, and he completely sort of mashed uh, Sir Keir Starmer into the ground, didn't he? No, I don't think he did, actually. I think Keir Starmer had the better, better of the arguments. But, I mean, of the rhetoric well, and of the punch and Judy... Uh, certainly Boris Johnson yeah. did, did Yeah, but better. he didn't really have the brush of the arguments because all he said was was that the Tories have neglected the NHS for 10 years. Uh, now it's too late. That's, well, that is true. Them. That is uh, true. Yeah, but it, nobody cares about that. Everybody knows that. That's not like fresh news, is it? I mean, <laughs> no, the, idea that, the idea that somehow it's no, all the it's Tories... No, but it's true. But it's not all the which Tories' is, which fault. Which is useful. But, yeah, but it's, but it's also true to say that the NHS is in hock and in debt to such an extent because Tony Blair and Gordon Brown no, it did the PFI no, project. No, yes, is, they did. Which completely hobbled them in terms of the amount of money they... Oh, so are no, you saying what, the PFI was a good thing? No, Yes, PFI was a good thing, okay, broadly. So it, um, the fact that it, that it hobbled them financially... No, it didn't. Well, how did it, it not? It, it allowed the building of of, of a huge number of uh, of new hospitals. Yes, it did. At a time of, uh, but it also allowed a huge no, number did. of people Let, to make a vast we, amount of money because of the interest that they had to then pay no, back. No, that's not that, that is not the case. It was an unconventional form of financing. It was a bit more expensive than uh, bit more expensive than conventional yes. borrowing. But broadly, it was a. It, I do like it. It was, when you, when it was you a good thing. But, like but you are cha- you are trying to change the subject from from Keir Starmer's stunning success. Well, at, not really, uh, Prime Minister. Well, you're, I mean, rather you're a bit like the Joe Biden of the. Independent, you know, <laughs> your stunning success in Afghanistan, Mr. <laughs> President. You know, this was by far and away not a stunning success because he didn't land a punch on Boris. Boris just kept flipping him away. Well, in terms of in terms of punch and Judy rhetoric mm. and 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 pleasing a noisy uh, full House of Commons yes. chamber, which which of course is good is good theatre, and I, I did enjoy yeah. it, I did enjoy that. And yes, Boris Johnson did have the better of mm. of, of the theatre, but on the substance, I thought Keir Starmer made a number of very important points. Well, he may have done. One, one is that uh, national insurance is not the fairest way to uh, to finance this, and uh, you know, obviously, Labour are shying away from saying put up put up income tax instead. Yes, um, which is obviously the fairest way of, mm. of doing it. But I mean, that doesn't mean he hasn't got a point. Yes, he may have a point, but he doesn't have a plan, as Boris pointed out. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that that's a good thing that Boris is saying, because yeah. Boris basically says, well, "Well, the thing is, I've got a plan. Don't yes. worry about whether it's a good plan. <laughs> exactly. It's just a plan." <laughs> and that's how bad Keir Starmer is. He hasn't even yes. got a bad plan. He's it got would... no plan. Keir Starmer would have been on much stronger ground, uh, especially in the sort of Punch and Judy theatre business, yeah. if he'd had an alternative. Yes. If he could just say, well, look, your plan's rubbish, I've got an alternative yeah. plan here, and yes. this, this is how yeah. it works, and, and particularly, and, and particularly if he had been a bit more specific, because the one thing that this plan appears not to be is specific. I mean, well, it doesn't say how £10 billion a year is going to in any way reduce waiting times in hospitals. No, quite. Because, and, because we don't know how that's going to work. Again, Keir Starmer uh, made, made the very good point that, that Boris Johnson 
Charles and couldn't guarantee that he would clear the backlog right. by the time of the next election. No, of course he uh, Because everybody knows because he's, he not going, he's not going to. There's no but, point in him pretending that he can. That's the point. I mean, there's no point in anybody pretending that any of this money is going to get anywhere near the NHS because it won't. Well, no, that's not true. It I think won't. it is going to make a very significant difference. I really? Mean, this, well, this, I these are to, large sums of money. I look forward um, to seeing you this time next year when we can be discussing how the uh, waiting times have not gone down. No. Um, how they might have massaged a few figures and make it look like something's changed. But people still well, can't see a doctor in this country. No, I know. And and there's a there's there's a new survey saying doctors say they can't go back to pre-pandemic levels because they got to do um, infection control. Yes. And, and, and all of the rest yeah. of it. And also saying that patients actually don't want to because they want to do remote consultations, well, which, more is, more which doctors, is not true. Like, they'd much rather uh, if they could run their surgeries without any patients at all. <laughs> you know, that would be far more efficient. <laughs> we'll and, in fact, <laughs> and, and in fact, would you please stop ringing us because yeah. we're very busy. No, but the big question on the substance of all this is whether Boris Johnson is going to uh, successfully copy Tony Blair mm. uh, because he set up a he set up a prime minister's delivery unit just just as Tony Blair did, which yeah. was extremely successful in the new Labour period. Mm. Uh, to to set those targets for the NHS and yeah. other and other departments, and actually, div, you know, look at look in detail at, at how to deliver them, mm. how how specifically well, to as, make stuff. As long happen as they the actually ground. do make stuff happen, which yeah. is what I doubt uh, will be the case, then great. And if that does work, then I think everyone will be very happy because, I mean, surprisingly, as ever, Boris Johnson hasn't come out of this so far looking terrible. No. But I mean, he should. <laughs> yes, know, absolutely. I mean, even I'm saying that, you know, yeah. and I, I would rather like him to succeed because I, you know, last thing I want is Keir Starmer as prime minister. But well, stay with us because I want to talk to you about the Labour Party because I think part of the problem with the working class and the story here that we're going to talk about in a minute, KPMG, one of the big accounting and consultancy firms, has become the first big business in Britain to set targets for the number of working class staff that they want to hire. So we're going to talk to John here and try to find out whether we can figure out who is a working class member of Great Britain in the United Kingdom. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The sun is still out. It did rain a bit last night. It's a little bit cooler. Uh, so uh, for those of you who don't like the heat, uh, good luck with uh, uh, with getting into autumn because that's what we're going to be doing. And conference season will be upon us very soon. I don't know whether you're going, John. John Reynolds is uh, with us. Um, if, if I can work out how to do my, um, my, my COVID passport. Yes. Uh, on my phone. Yes, right. I, yes, I will be going to the Labour Party conference. At yes, there's going to be then, some. Then I'll worry about the Tories after that. Uh, yes, absolutely right. So we'll talk about the Labour Party first, then, because um, KPMG is a story uh, in the Times this morning. The accounting consulting firm says, sort of global international company. This they're now aiming for 29% of their partners and directors, so the senior people in the in the company, by 2030 to have come from the working class. Now they say that having parents with routine and manual jobs such as plumbers, electricians, butchers and van drivers are basically working class. So yeah. presumably Sadiq Khan would qualify. He would, yeah. As working I, I, class. I, I believe his, his dad's a bus driver. I don't I, think many I, people know that. The, but... I think if you check, uh, if you research it well enough, you can probably find one or two references to that um, uh, on, uh, on Google. No, well, I've, just, I've just done some in-depth research, which involved putting my glasses on and reading mm. reading the front page of the Times. Well, listen, any research is welcome on this show because we don't do a lot of it. <laughs> no, that's a joke. We do a great deal of research here. Don't believe a word of that. Um, but it is one of these great myths, isn't it, the working class? Because lots of people say they're working class. I mean, technically... Yeah. My father was definitely working class. His father was a working class man from Glasgow. My mother came from a working class family in Glasgow, but she was then a teacher. Right. So uh, I don't think that makes me working class. And my father was a sort of graphic artist, which I don't think is, but he was, but he was definitely a working class man. Yeah, thought, of, I, him, thought of himself as working yes, class. Yes, and, and, yes. and was really. He was a trade unionist all his life. I mean, I've 
not I've never considered myself working class I've always considered myself middle class and yeah. so and I don't think there's anything wrong which, with that which kind of middle class though what Are you mean you upper or lower upper, or? upper middle or, or lower well I'm certainly not upper I don't think um, because like, again what denotes that is it what? is it money is it where you live is it what yeah. car you drive is it who you're married to I mean I don't know absolutely absolutely middle class I'm proudly middle middle class really? def- definitely middle, I think we're the same definitely though. in the middle right um, I mean you know my father was a was a minister in the church my okay. mother, mother was a teacher that's very uh, that makes me that's super ab- middle. absolutely that bang, is, that bang is in the middle 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 England middle that is. Um, but, <laughs> but this is the problem for the Labour Party because yeah. if you say to the Labour Party I bet you you could ask anyone in Parliament and they'd give you a different answer well, who's abso- working ab- class absolutely I mean I, 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 I love old opinion polls and I was looking looking at some old opinion polls you quite polls like and, new ones as well I like new ones as well I love opinion polls um, I mean Gallup did did opinion polling before anybody else in this country in the 1940s they asked people what, what class they mm. were uh, and what is astonishing is that more people describe themselves as middle class then than do oh, really? now. Right. Now, more than half of the population, uh, if you force them to choose middle yeah. class or working class, will say that they're working class. Mm. Whereas, you know, objectively, they're not doing routine or manual occupations of the of the kind you've 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 just read out. But I mean, Deborah Mattinson, who who is who who does a lot of research in this area and is now Keir Starmer's uh, head of strategy. Mm. Um, has has done some very interesting research on this. Actually, if, if you ask people what class they are, they don't like. They, 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 the preferred answer is, I don't think of myself as as, as, as belonging any to any class right. at all. Uh, That's what we, people actually think of themselves. Because it is considered so, considerably, by some distance, a sort of English obsession, isn't it? It is. Because it is. even um, in Scotland, they don't really talk about class in the same way that we do in England. No, well, in Scotland, they have this the, this airy fairy notion that they don't have a class system. No, you know, they just they're, have they're the just bloody Scottish. English that come up from time to time <laughs> to buy up some land and go shooting grouse on it. You know, but the rest <laughs> of the time, everybody's the same. That's and, right. And Wales, I think, is similar. You know. They, they consider themselves Welsh rather yes. than you know working class. Or... Absolutely, and but even the English don't think don't want to think of themselves as, as belonging to a particular class. And I think that's that's the key to, to understanding this. I mean, if 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 Keir Starmer uh, were to get, go down the, the route, and I don't think he will because Deborah Mattinson's advising him of, of trying to identify with 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 the working class. But isn't that uh, part of that... their problem though? Because Labour have lost. The idea of what Labour stands for, because Labour always did stand for the working class, yeah, it always but, was represented by the trade union movement, you know, and it's kind of because there, there isn't much manual work going on you know, on a mass scale. Who do they represent? Well, uh, but they but they represent everybody, Mike. I mean, that's that's I mean, they, they need they need to they need to take a leaf from John Major's book, mm. who promised a classless society, because that's actually what people want. They do, they don't want a, a society defined by class. Mm. Well, you say that, but then I think there's an awful lot of people in the Labour Party that would love to have it de- defined by by that, and they want to be the party of the working. Well, class, maybe that's good. But they be... just don't know anyone who's working class anymore because they're all living in Islington. <laughs> well, but but this is the other the other thing that's happened recently. If you study if you study enough. Of Opinion polls yeah. is that is that you know Labour is no longer uh, the working class party right. compared with the Conservatives as as, as the middle class party. The, the the two parties are now sort of roughly neck and neck yeah. in terms of their where where and, their and support in, and in their many ways come Tony from. Blair's responsible for that, isn't he? Because he basically no. created this kind of middle no ground. Jeremy Corbyn is responsible for that. Well, it was under Jeremy Corbyn that Labour became a middle class party. Under Tony Blair. Labour was was a very successful well, I was working class say, party, which also drew support well, from I, the middle class. Well, I wasn't I wasn't suggesting that it wasn't a working class party then. What I was going to say was it 
kind of created this middle area where both Tony Blair and, and David Cameron kind of interloped and, and lapped over each other so that there wasn't much to choose really between them. Well, presentation... In terms of what they did. Yes, presentationally, that's true. And that's how politics works, isn't mm. it? You, you try and steal the other person's ground unless you're, unless you're Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. which, is, which is where it all went... went Horribly wrong, wrong. Wrong for a bit. Yes. But we're now back to normal with, with Boris Johnson trying to trying to claim the NHS mm. and, and, and you know, whatever Keir Starmer's gonna try and do in his in his party conference yes. speech. Yes, well what is but, he gonna do about Jeremy Corbyn? Because that's one of the big questions, isn't it? Are they gonna try and uh, let him come to conference and kick him out? Are they gonna not kick him out? Uh, are they gonna stop him entering conference? I mean, well no they, they can't do? because he's a member of the he's a member of the Labour Party, even if he's not a member of the parliamentary Labour Party. I get he can't that. call himself a Labour but they MP. Could, so he, but they he could. does he's entitled to attend conference as a party member. Yes, but could they also not strip him of that though, if they wanted no, to? I don't think. I'm not sure. I don't think that would that would be constructive. But it'd be very interesting to see how he how he turns up. Uh, and it seems that all of all the focus now is 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 on um, um, what's his name, David Evans, mm. the the general secretary, right. because there's 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 moves to try and uh, to try and get him sacked as general secretary, which which the party conference does have the power to do mm. uh, if it, if if a vote can be engineered on that. Yes. Um, and David Evans is obviously the sort of the intermediate hate figure because mm. he's responsible for for discipline and, and chucking out all right. these uh, But this could be one of the most supporters. divisive Labour conferences that's been for a while, couldn't it? Well, I hope so, yes, because we need a bit of clarity about well, what the Labour Party stands surely for. Surely one thing that Keir Starmer needs to do is to actually physically set out uh, some kind of manifesto that we, he actually you know, believes in, because we don't really know what he believes in. Well, exactly. And I think that's that's why this is really, really significant speech that he's got to deliver this time. Uh, plus, there are going to be some quite significant uh, votes. I mean, I suspect he's got the he's got the votes that he needs for most of what he what he wants. Mm. I mean, I think the I, th I think if if a if a vote on you know whether Jeremy Corbyn should be a Labour MP could be engineered. I mean, that could be that could be very close. Yes. That could be that could be tight. Right. But uh, otherwise, I think I think the conference will want to back whatever Keir Starmer uh, says he stands for. Yes, I think they'll want to show some kind of uh, unison. In some way, shape, or form, but we shall see. Well, momentum are not the the, the force they were. No. The, the sort of uh, the non-Corbynite forces have been have been rallying, and there are three big unions. Even I mean, Unite is obviously not on board, but mm. there are three big unions who have a very large chunk of the vote at uh, conference who are trying to be helpful mm. to get started. Right. Well, we shall see. John, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, the very middle class John Rental there uh, talking about the working class, which has always been Labour Party's problem, really. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, stories we were just talking about with John Rental there uh, about Pretty Patel's latest gambit in the channel. She's basically now saying that the boats coming here with illegal migrants on them will finally be turned around. Now, a lot of people don't seem to think she can do that. But let's talk to Alp Mehmet, chairman of Migration Watch, and find out what he makes of it. Alp, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, sir. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, if it was this easy, Pleasure. she could have said this about a year ago, couldn't she? Well, I was going to say, we should have been doing it uh, a long time ago. Um, look, with regard to the legalities, uh, the Home Office, the Foreign Office, they've got some of the best loyal lawyers, some of the best legal brains available. I'm sure that they've looked into this and they've arrived at the conclusion that it's perfectly uh, legal to do so. And bear in mind that we are, after all, sending people back to a safe country. We're not sending them back into danger or war zones or anything like that. So I, with regard to the, the legal aspects, I, I, I don't have too much of a problem. However, uh, one thing that I did 
note, and I'm sure others have as well, is that um, the Home Secretary was very careful to point out that this would all only be done with the, the larger boats. It will be done with the sturdier ones. Mm. Uh, there will be no question of endangering anyone's life. And that, to me, suggests that all that the traffickers will do is pile them into small, even less seaworthy vessels and send them across the channel. We'll see. Well, one of the questions that we're looking now at some um, migrants stepping off an RNLI boat, one of my suggestions to John Rental, who was here a minute ago, uh, was that surely they could turn around the RNLI boats because they are sturdy boats and they are boats which are arriving on our shores with with illegal migrants on them. And they are not a government operation. So technically speaking, we could tell the RNLI to get lost as well. <laughs> That's one way of doing it. Sorry, RNLI, you can't come back into your, your own country. Um, well, not yes. with. I mean, if they were if they were filled with illegal cargo, right? If the RNLI were secretly running a cocaine racket and they had blocks of cocaine on their ships, we'd turn them away. Same here. Well, we wouldn't. We'd we'd take them in and arrest them. Actually, and uh, this is what we should be doing with those being uh, brought over. Anyway, we should detain them, hold on to them. If they're applying for asylum, well. Um, I, I would argue that you can quickly decide whether or not they qualify and those who don't should be sent back at that point. If we do decide to continue with their uh, applications and consider their applications, then um, they should be held until we reach some sort of conclusion, not be sent into accommodation, given pocket money and, and frankly allowed to, to roam freely at will. Right. That's really what's wrong at the moment. and. I'm sure that some of them actually working on uh, the black market as well. Well, I think that's the the worry, isn't it? Because of the way that, that this business is being operated, because of the way that the human traffickers are now multimillionaires who are running effectively a mass movement of people operation, uh, a criminal enterprise, something which is now very well organised indeed. You wouldn't be at all surprised to find out that some of those coming are ending up working for these traffickers in other areas of criminality. I have absolutely no doubt of of that, and that is exactly what's happening. We also uh, we don't really know who's coming in, who's who's safe, who's a, a security risk. Frankly, what sort of criminals are being allowed in? Uh, they destroy their their documents. Uh, some of them are not even picked up. Mm. Those who arrived on Sunday, as far as I know, not all of those were picked up. So at the moment, this is really a huge gap in our defences as well as in our immigration control. Yes. And I mean, there are those who will point out that while this might be a step in the right direction, it's clearly not the answer. Uh, so they're still looking, apparently, at this idea of having an offshore um, sort of processing centre, if you like. The latest country being mentioned, I think, is Ghana, where you would take them uh, for processing. But it's a rather kind of cumbersome method, that, isn't it? It is, it is cumbersome, and in the end, uh, even if we attempt it, I, I suspect we'll find it's not uh, practical. But um, there's no problem with overseas processing centres. I'd quite welcome them, frankly, um, and I think that, that will be a good thing. It's really what happens at the end of the process, yeah. as with those that we detain in this country. 
if you are sending them to to Ghana or Zambia or Rwanda or wherever to be processed, fine. But what happens at the end of that process? If we are not at the point of sending them back, even if they don't qualify for asylum, then you know what's what's the point? It's going to take time to set it all up anyway. Uh, we're not about to uh, be sending uh, people to processing centres overseas anytime soon, I, I suspect. But that is one of the um, uh, elements in the uh, in the the bill that's going through Parliament at the moment. Let's see whether it actually makes it into an act and indeed whether or not the government actually uh, acts on it. My, my concern really is that I've heard so often over the last three years about how we're going to stop it, how we're going to uh, put an end to trafficking, how we're going to uh, uh, make sure that the business model fails. And time and time again, all that happens is that numbers shoot up. Yes. We've gone from a few hundred three years ago to well over 13,000 this year. Yeah. And it's going to continue going up because it's easy money for the traffickers. Well, of course. And as soon as um, you can get a thousand people to come in one day, particularly on calm days, and I know it's going to get a bit rougher as we get further into the autumn and into the winter, but nevertheless, at the height of summer, and we're still there for at least another three or four weeks, I would say, I mean, you could be looking at getting five or six or maybe even 10,000 in in any given week. So we could end up before the end of this year, Alp, with a number more akin to 30 or 40,000. Well, it's going to end up looking more and more like what is going on in the Mediterranean and yeah. what has been going on in the Mediterranean for, for some time. And there's clearly going to be no shortage of people who want to take this path, who want to embark on this route. I think William Hague, a former leader of the Conservative Party, wrote earlier this week that... Uh, there are millions in Africa mm. who are potentially going to end up making their way north into Europe and a lot of them to this country. Can we please seriously look at how we're going to prevent people from leaving these countries in the first place, but then not simply taking them in because it's generous and it's virtue signaling a lot of the time, but because in the end we're not doing them any favors yeah we are denuding the the populations of any number of countries in in africa of of their skills of of their workforce frankly is that sensible i would argue that it isn't no i think it's very very uh, non-sensible indeed alp Mehmet, thank you very much indeed alp Mehmet from migration watch on the news that priti patel uh, is vowing now to turn the boats around um, however as many people have pointed out they're only really able to turn the boats around which are considered to be seaworthy. So if it's a particularly uh, rickety-looking um, vessel, like a dinghy which doesn't look particularly sturdy, then they won't be turning that one around. But if it's a dinghy that does look sturdy, they will. So it could be an interesting way uh, of dealing with the problem, but it won't solve it, it won't fix it, but it does need to happen. Something needs to happen because it's getting out of hand and has been out of hand for quite some time. 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, uh, we've been having a debate about class. Mike uh, says, Robert, my granddad was a miner, my grand was a housewife, my dad was a carpet fitter, I've been a miner, builder's labourer and council worker, I'm from an old mining town, I was born into working class roots and proud of it. It's grounded me for the way of the world. Well, I think a lot of people consider themselves to be working class, and I think most people who do probably are, but I'm not sure that KPMG is the right organisation to actually find a way through it and start saying they're going to hire a third of their partners and their senior kind of uh, uh, workers at the consulting company from working class backgrounds. I think it's all a bit weird. I wonder if Harry Miller's got a view on that. We're going to talk to him in a moment about um, Cressida Dick, who apparently uh, the Metropolitan Police would like to give an extension uh, of tenure to for some bizarre reason. Harry's a former police officer, co-founder of the Fair Cop Group. Harry, very good morning to you. Yeah, nice to speak to you, Mike, as usual. Yes, indeed. Do you consider yourself working class, Harry? We're having this conversation this morning because KPMG is talking about wanting to get more working class people into their firm, which I think is an admirable idea because we all know that white working class boys are not very well treated in this country and not very well kind of promoted, if you like. But I'm not quite sure how easy it's going to be for them to, to work it out. They're claiming that if your parents were working class, that makes you working class. Well, my parents were very much working class, but I recognise that I was brought up with a fair degree of privilege from a solid, in a solidly middle class uh, household. Mm. Um, but but I think I think the lines between middle class and working class are are somewhat blurred these days. It's a lot of it is about is about attitude. I would say that I I relate far more to uh, the working classes than I do to some of the middle class 
intelligentsia yes. who like to spend their days, you know, talking nonsense over frappes and stuff. I just don't get that at all. <laughs> no. I'm definitely a, a bacon. I'm a bacon butty man. Yes. As you can well imagine. Excellent. Well done. And funnily enough, the reason I bring it up with you as well is that it sort of pervades everything that we do. And you might say that it's the middle classization, if you like, of the police force in this country that's kind of doomed it, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Yeah, the, the middle classes are suffering from this absolute guilt about everything. And in the olden days, they'd they'd put on a hair shirt, but now they go out and buy a Prius or, um, you know, put on a rainbow costume. And yes. the police, being being so middle class as they are, uh, they've fallen for exactly the same thing. So they're now they're now heavily involved in gesture policing yeah. as opposed to policing policing because gesture policing is so much easier it's so much easier i mean we had the we had the absolutely ridiculous spectacles just last weekend of leicestershire police putting on literal multicolored fairy wings onto their uniforms uh, and and walking up and down the streets of Leicester uh, holding trans riot shields um in the name in the name of policing yeah no no yeah we've got pictures I missed that one actual pictures of police officers wearing wearing fairy wings I mean it brings a whole new meaning to the term Sweeney Todd flying squad doesn't it Mike (laughs) it really does yeah Thumbelina is coming for you I mean it really is extraordinary but this is it I mean you know here we have Cressida Dick who is probably the the ultimate kind of uh, personification of middle class policing I mean I was pleased to say that last week when Extinction Rebellion were around uh, they did seem to treat them a little bit better and a little bit harder uh, perhaps than they had the last time they were demonstrating Um, so that was a step in the right direction but I mean Cressida Dick's rap sheet if you for want of a better word it's as long as your arm. I mean, she's got so much wrong that I'm, I'm struggling to think of anything she's actually got right. She's got nothing right, actually. Her rap sheet is incredibly long. You, you would not. It's not a great CV, is no. it? No. You wouldn't look at that CV and go, oh, you know what? She'd make a great, an absolutely great commander yes. of the, the greatest police force in the country. Let's have her. You wouldn't do that. But, of course, rather than, um, I, I don't know, actually conflict, uh, confronting the problems uh, which are endemic within the Mets, what happens is the the senior officers rally round, and they th- their main job is to protect is to protect the cult of Miss Dick. Yes. that's what's going on here. She is a personality cult. They call her Cres. They call her Cres. They think she's absolutely wonderful, and they will do anything to stop her sullying her hands with any of the corrupt dirt that goes on in the in, in the Met. And of course, it's right the way through. We've got Operation Midland. We've got the, the way that they they have even recently been accused of institutional racism mm. uh, and cover-ups. Um, yeah, any other CEO would not be looking at a two-year multi, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds contract. They'd be looking at getting fired. Yeah. And that's what needs to happen to Cressida Dick. Well, I was listening, funnily enough, to Paul Gambaccini talking this morning because he's one of the signatories to a letter which has been sent yeah. to Boris Johnson about Operation Midland. This was, of course, the horrendous, um, ghastly allegations made about various high-profile figures being involved in all sorts of ghastly yeah, paedophilia activities. Uh, you know, people like Harvey Proctor, uh, Lord Britton, Alistair Morgan, Nicol- Nicholas Bramall. I mean, he was in tears as he was describing how these people's lives were ruined, basically, by this particular operation, which was based on nothing but a complete tissue of lies from a fantasist. Yeah, exactly. But we've we've moved from a position where people are presumed to be innocent, and we've moved to a position where the police do not need to have any evidence. Mm. Everything, everything is now 
perception based. So if you perceive that somebody has done something to you, they've done it. And it's so much easier for the police to operate on this um, perception based policing and evidence free policing than it is to do actual policing. That's the problem, Mike. And we've seen it. That's why they're so keen on these non-crime hate incidents. Mm. That's why they would rather uh, police pronouns than actually go out and try and track down robbers. This is why we have a, a knife crime endemic. And we've seen more we've seen more fatal stabbings, I think, this year in the first six months of the year uh, than any other year. But the police aren't focusing on these real problems of crime. They're focusing on gesture policing. And that's where it's all wrong. And this stems from the top. This stems from uh, Cressida Dick. She's the one that's responsible for this. She's the one that sets the culture within the police force. And unfortunately, the culture of the Met then permeates out to every other force mm. in England and Wales. And that's why all the police forces need a complete not to shake up. Well, that's right, because, I mean, the problem as well would seem to be that if she was ever removed from her office, she would get some top job in government or she would be elevated to the House of Lords like Ian Blair was, you know. But we've, we've, we've not even mentioned the Stephen Lawrence um, cover-up. We've not even mentioned John Charles de Menezes, the Brazilian who was shot yeah. dead by the police under her watch because it was her order, you know. And then it just goes well, on well, and it, on. Isn't it funny, Mike, that, that um, the McPherson report demanded that the police look at themselves and look at look themselves in the mirror and see their own institutional racism. Mm. What they've done, they've taken the mirror down and they're now looking at all of us as though we're the ones who are institutionally racist, yeah. as though we're the ones who need to go on a course to highlight and uncover our own white supremacy. They've completely turned round their own responsibility and laid it on us. And that is the action of a coward. And I, I, I was listening to Richard Tice's show on... Mm. Uh, on Sunday, and I think that you had the National Chair of the Police Federation on, yeah. and he actually said that, that that London was lucky to have the Met. I beg your pardon? Really? What, yeah, that's what he said. London is lucky to have the Met, as though the Met, the Met Police are, are this fantastic organisation, and we should, we should thank our lucky stars that we've got them. Now, sorry, but that's wrong, because the police are the public, and the public are the police. The police aren't separate to the public. They simply aren't. And this notion that we're supposed to be grateful and mm. I don't know, I'm surprised he didn't suggest on a Thursday night we go out with our sauce, with our ladles and our spoons and clap them uh, every week. <laughs> well, I'm uh, sure so that's thankful. what they'd want to. I'm so, sure they'd love to do so that. So thankful should we be. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And we've moved into a position now where the police are absolutely untouchable. Mm. They are immune from criticism. They investigate themselves. And there's a surprise they find themselves not wanting. Well, incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. <laughs> this is what happens, and we need to have a root and branch reform of this. Yeah. We need to separate politics from policing, because I believe a lot of this, uh, certainly with Cressida Dick, stems from her lapdogging to uh, Sadi Khan. And this explains entirely why she will police Extinction Rebellion with kit gloves, and she will go against the lockdown sceptics uh, with a heavy fist because she will always she will always police in a manner which suits her politics. Yes, and which presumably suits the people inside the operation uh, who are giving her that sort of uh, encouragement because presumably somebody is. Yeah, well, it's, it's Sadiq Khan. I'm certainly Sadiq Khan. You know, he's he's her boss. He's her boss. And if Sadiq Khan didn't like it, she would do something different. Why do you mm. think she's going to get an, ex an extension to a contract? She's getting an extension because she's pleased her political masters. That's why. It's as simple as that. And that's why I think Fair Cop needs to 
emphasise and re-emphasise the fact that we need an absolute separation of politics from policing. You cannot have both. You simply cannot. Because if you do, you end up with a police force that polices with fear and with favour. And we want a police force that polices without fear and without favour. Full stop. Absolutely right. Well said. Harry Miller, uh, spoken like a true member of the Independent Republic, full of common sense, former police officer, co-founder of the Fair Cop Group. Uh, We are Ladies and gentlemen, in a place where we're hearing this words, uh, these words a lot, aren't we? We need root and branch reform. We need root and branch reform of the NHS. We need root and branch reform of the police service. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that they both, as organisations, been run into the ground, that they are no longer fit for purpose. They don't do what they're supposed to do. The NHS is supposed to save the people of this country. Instead, we're told that we have to save the NHS. We're not supposed to go there because it might upset some people. It might overrun the service. You can't go to hospital. There's not enough beds. You can't go to the doctor. We don't want to see you if you're sick because you might give your sickness to somebody else. I mean, what is going on? The police don't want to arrest people because, you know, that's not what they do. Really? How bizarre. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the home of Common Sense. Now available, of course, on television as well. All you've got to do is go to talkradio.tv and you can watch us as well as listening. Let's talk to Dr David Lloyd, GP at the Ridgeway Surgery. David, a very good uh, afternoon to you. And you, Mike. Thank you. Good to see you. Yeah, very nice indeed to talk to you. Let's talk, first of all, about this idea of uh, putting some money on uh, on national insurance, because, of course, national insurance was originally intended to be everybody paying into their own pension scheme, which I suppose hasn't been the case for for quite a long time now. Um, People seem to have accepted it, but I guess they'll only really will only really know that for sure once they start paying for it. Well, yes, and I, I mean, I, I, I could hear in your tone that there were that you had some slight uh, objections to this. I, I, I do myself. National insurance is a tax that both uh, people who work pay and people who employ pay. Mm-hmm. So the very people that we're trying to make help survive in this care home crisis uh, are going to be paying more to employ their employees. So this tax is on the working people. And it's on is organisations that, that that need to be providing care. Yes. Uh, so my my suggestion, and I, I'd love to hear your views, is that they're aiming they're aiming the the, the tax grab at the wrong people. Yes, I think that's probably right. Um, and and as an alternative, I would have liked to hear some of the uh, uh, some of the alternatives from Sir Keir Starmer, which which he didn't really put forward. Because I suppose one of the other problems, and I don't know whether they've exempted themselves here, but the NHS is one of the biggest employers in the country. Presumably, who will have to who will have to yeah, pay more national they'll, insurance? They'll, they'll be totally hammered by this, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that doesn't make much sense to me at all. And the other problem no. I've got with it, Doctor, is that I'm not certain how they're going to prove that any amount of money that they put in is going to get any particular result out. I mean, for example, as a doctor, how do you reduce the numbers of people waiting for operations with money? How do you do that? Well, exactly. You've got to find the surgeons and the nurses and the doctors and uh, and the support staff to do those operations, mm. and that it, that can be very tricky as well. Yes, I would have so, thought. Yes, so. no. The the, the 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 chaos that COVID has produced is going to take a very long time to sort out. 
the chaos that this winter is going to bring us is going to take a long time to sort out. Yes. Um, and money is just a part of a very, very complex equation. Mm, quite. I mean, I wonder whether, and I don't like to be over-cynical in these matters, but I wonder whether they needed some money because of uh, the lockdown. They needed to somehow bring some revenue in because of the amount of money they've paid out in furlough and all the rest of it, uh, and for the vaccines and for the, the tests they're giving away by the millions that they just thought, well, look, if we say it's for the NHS, then people will swallow it much more easily than if we just say it's a higher tax. Well, I, I think that's exactly right, isn't it? They put the NHS, they've lumped the NHS and social care together so that people can have the, the badge of the NHS so mm. people won't feel about forking out for social care. But it's really the, I mean, speaking as a, as a doctor who is in, in the twilight of his years, I spend my life dealing with very old, very frail patients. Yeah. And the care, the care crisis is there. We have a, a system that is falling apart, and that's where the money should go. We'll sort out the health service with the budget, I think. I think we've got lots of money. Everybody you talk to says that we're, we're getting lots of money. Yes. We, need, we, need, we need to get the social care part sorted. Patients coming out of hospital need to have somewhere to go. Mm. People that are, are falling apart at home need to have care going into their houses. It isn't just about residential care and old people's homes. Very, very few people now go into those. It's about providing care at home where patients want to live and want to die. Yes. I mean, isn't it interesting as well that, that you say uh, that that is the critical place where stuff needs to, to happen? Because at the moment, as far as I know, the money that's being collected as of next April isn't going straight to social care. It's only going to be about a billion that goes to social care and the rest yeah. is actually for the NHS. So that's that's kind of the first mistake, isn't it? Well, it's no, It's I think it's carefully calculated. I don't think it's a mistake. I think that our prime minister has has worked out the words to, to, to make, to pass uh, an enormous amount of tax to his backbenchers who are not terribly keen on tax. No, exactly right. Although they're not so unkeen on it that they didn't vote against it because only five of them managed to do that. Well, they'd like to have jobs in the future. Yes, of course. Now, what do you, what do you think could be done uh, to make things better on a, you know, relatively quickly in terms of the care home crisis? Um... Well, I, 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 I think you, the, 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 we have a crisis amongst people. Mm. Care home staff are, and, and carers are going to people's homes are the poorest paid and the risk, have some of the poorest paid and some of the riskiest occupations they have. They've put themselves in the front line on the COVID crisis for the whole year. They're paid nothing. They're paid, barely paid the, the minimum wage. And they have a system where they are only allowed to give units of care measured in minutes and when they've done the 10.4 minutes with a with a an elderly person at home they have to move on to the next one mm. so we've got to have a, a system that's much more flexible that's much more caring uh and we need to pay these people more money yeah. you know you and i get paid very well for doing doing jobs that everybody loves but these people are doing a job that everybody needs for mm. nothing yes and is it part of the problem as well, the fact that many care homes are privately operated, they're operated for profit, uh, they're sometimes owned by very wealthy individuals or, or companies. Yes. Um, and are traded, uh, I mean, they're bunched together and then bought and sold and yeah. traded. And, and, they're, yeah. and they're cash cows, I mean, they make an awful lot of money. And I'm slightly queasy, actually, about subsidising some very wealthy people, which I'm afraid is what we might be doing. Yeah, yeah I think you make a very good point. But on the other hand, the... the the carers that go into people's homes are very often run by very small organisations. Yeah. Um, and 
they are they are not making huge quantities of money and indeed a lot of them are shutting down because they're making losses mm. yes i'd love it if you could stop big business from wandering in and buying them all up and then selling them at, at, selling them on uh, and keep taking a cut every time they do it that would be lovely and mm. i'd like you to organize that yes i'll see what i can do i mean part of the problem as well is for me anyway for though i'm not a great expert in it but i'm told that there's an awful lot of inconsistencies and that some care homes are much better than others um, and it's hard to know how good or bad they are without actually visiting them. Well, we we do have the CQC, and they they make reports on me and my practice, mm. and they make reports in social care as well. So you can look up the rating of any particular home or residential home on the on the CQC website. And is that pretty reliable? So, I mean, what 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 do they do, for example, if they find? I mean, is it like the Ofsted inspection report? Well, all, I mean, well it is. It's. I mean, I'm just speaking personally. When they arrive, when the inspectors arrive, and they arrive. They only give you a few days' notice before they arrive. Right. They take you apart. Mm. They are vicious. But yeah. can they also order you to improve in areas? They do. They can reduce your. They can reduce your status from good to um, needs improvement to, you know, you better close now. Yeah. And they do. They close people down. Mm. Okay. And do we have enough care homes? I suppose would be the next question. Well, do we? It, it, the question is what sort of care you would like your mother and father to have when they're in their 90s and, and do they want to stay at home in which case uh, that's what we should be concentrating on or would you like them in less like in australia once you hit 85 you're you're in an enormous state-run nursing home do you mm. want to do that or like florida you move to florida and, and live in live on a golf course for the rain. i mean yes there are the well, models enough, of care I mean, yeah. are all that in America, they have quite an interesting sort of scheme, don't they, where you can basically use, you can basically buy your way into a retirement community. So, for example, if you had a house, um, but you can't really look after yourself anymore, you don't have to sell the house and just give the money to somebody who runs a care home. You can buy yourself, say, a condominium in a little complex where there are other people, where you have sort of assisted living, if you like. But it's yeah. a lot less kind of demeaning and a lot more dignified uh, than having to sit in a room on your own all day waiting for somebody to bring you some mashed potatoes and peas. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think that's exactly right. It, we must change the perception that we've got of caring for the elderly. They are the people that work very hard to produce the taxes that pay our pensions, and we must value them and look after them properly. Yes. And, I mean, as a doctor, uh, how would you, for example, allocate some of the money that they're going to give to the NHS in order to improve, again, immediately what it is that hospitals are able to do? I mean, would you hire more physicians? Because obviously that's a long-term process. Would you hire more staff? Would you make more beds available? What would you do? Oh, dear. Do you want me to be radical? I'd um, love you to be radical. That's what you Well, OK. In Italy, in Italy, if you go to the A&E department uh, and you have a cough and a cold or a, or a sore throat, you are charged for your attendance. Ah. If you go to if you go into the A and E department with a heart attack, you get it for free. Hmm. Okay, so for emergency treatment is free. Non-emergency is not. What about that as an idea? I think that's a great idea. I also quite like the idea of charging for GP appointments um, yeah. because I think it would. I mean, a lot, an awful lot of doctors say to me that they are they have an awful lot of their time wasted by people who don't really need to see them. I, I have some difficulties with that one. Okay, the the classic. I mean, you know, someone may come to me with a sore, with you know, with the heading of a sore throat, but then as they're about to leave, they say, "Oh, by the way, my wife's just left me, and I'm beating up my children." So, yeah. they're, 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 we need to have some open system because people 
find it difficult to work their way through a system that you know puts rules on how you how you get to see things and that's why our a and e departments are completely overwhelmed at the moment and why hospitals are falling apart yes it is it's because the only consistent place at the moment in the health service is the a and e department everybody knows they are open seven days a week 24 hours a day i can go to a and e i know i'll be seen by a doctor or a nurse yes general practice for all its wonderfulness has really been closed through COVID, and everybody that's their perception yeah um, and so People have become less used to calling their GP as the first port of call and getting the primary care that they need and, and getting better care. Because if you go to a wait five hours in an A&E department to be then given some antibiotics and that's it, you're not actually tackling the real problem. No. So general practice, I'm afraid, has got to open up the doors. We've got to take, we've got to take control of patients. They need to know that that's where they go first and then we can sort out the rest. Absolutely. How about this for an idea? This is from Jacqueline, who's uh, tweeted in this. Why don't the hospitals build old, old people's flats inside hospital grounds and put a couple of nurses and doctors in there doing checks every few hours, install CCTV and alarm buttons in all rooms and monitored at 24 hours a day by a security guard? Uh, that sounds... Well, that's, a, that's an ugly idea. You could put a hotel in a, in a hospital and you can discharge people to the hotel, keep them there for a week or two as you say, closely monitor them and then move them back into the community. Yes. Lovely idea. And it's, that, it's almost like it's kind of a, a it's a, what, what I suppose you might call a holistic approach, isn't it? Where, you know, you've got several different levels of care. So you've got the hospital if you need something medically done and then you've got a sort of recuperation area uh, where you should, if you wish to, be able to stay, in, you know, sort of in, 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 for, for quite a long time. And then put a GP practice at the beginning of the hospital too. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, that doesn't it? Well, <laughs> I think I, you know, I think it does. It's it, it's uh, you the, the the machinations and the finances of the NHS make this all difficult to come about. But we are starting to work together as bigger teams now. Yeah. So these sorts of ideas are possible now. Yes, and I think the bureaucracy of the NHS needs to be looked at, doesn't it? I mean, I was uh, looking at a story yesterday. Oh. There's some ridiculous number. I think forty-two. Um, exec- chief executive roles currently being advertised on the NHS website, which well, pay- that's because well, that's because we're going under a reorganisation. Yes, but these are the, you have you, you 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 haven't waited for the punchline. The punchline being that the average wage of which is two hundred twenty-three thousand pounds. It's an awful lot of money to pay. But they're people. looking after a budget of billions. Yeah, I know, but that's always the argument. They've got a big budget. Well, so have heads of councils, but they couldn't do anything else. And, you know, it's just because they've got a load of money given to them by the public purse. It's not as if they've actually made that money. Somebody's just gone, here's a load of money. Um, can you manage it for us? No, they're, they're very... I mean, I, I would, I'm afraid, defend our managers. If you go to the average um, general practice in the United States, they'll have a nurse and a doctor at the front end, and they'll have 10 managers in the back office. We actually... We actually look after, manage our health service on a very, very small managerial budget. Well, I mean, I don't think there's anything small about any of the NHS budgets, is there? I mean, that's part of the problem. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I was just, I was just making the analogy. The yes. percentage that we spend on management as a percentage of the whole cake is much, much smaller than in most other health systems in yes. the world. And I mean, is there any, I'm often asked this question, is there any other part of the world that we could look at? I mean, you mentioned Italy there, uh, which is quite a good idea. I would, I quite like the model in France where you get paid as a doctor for the number of patients that you see rather than for the number of patients that happen to be registered at your no, practice. That doesn't work. You don't no, like well, that? that? 
No, that doesn't work. Why the not? French system is the French system is ferociously expensive. Very good, but ferociously expensive. Yeah. No, I think I'm afraid, as usual, we need to look towards Scandinavia. I think Sweden and Norway and people have got very good health services. They've got very good data. Everybody and all the fuss that we all have about sharing data. Every Swede's medical history is known to every university in, in Sweden. The, all the major research on major illness comes out of Sweden because they track everybody's illnesses. They yeah. know exactly what's going on. And so is that because they're better at data collection or is it because they're less worried about privacy? They're, they're less worried about privacy. The state dictates more about what is good and what is bad. And they've been doing it for years, so are very good at it. Yes. And Sweden, of course, is always mentioned in terms of COVID as well and how they dealt with it and how they... How well, now... yes, they had a funny attitude to it to begin with. Yes. I mean, it was kind of a bit of a bit of both, really, wasn't it? It was partly yeah. um, less cautious and then partly more cautious. Well, and, it, and everybody gets upset about us, but then are we the first country in the world that is actually learning to live with COVID? I don't know. This... Well, I'd like to say that we would be learning to live with it if, in fact, we weren't about to be given vaccine passports to go clubbing. Not that I particularly want to go clubbing, um, but now I sort of do because I'm that sort of um, contrary individual. Now that they, now, <laughs> I, now I want to go clubbing without showing a vaccine passport. That's the sort of person I am. Oh, well, no, I'm quite in favour of passports. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously... You're, you're, you're sitting there doing this amazing job. My job is seeing COVID. And when I was starting, I was starting to see vaccinated people getting quite ill. So we, we've got to think so about... So what's the point of proving that they've been vaccinated before they go mingling with other people in the dance, uh, on the dance floor? Well, because, well, the, the people we're seeing were all vaccinated at the very beginning, back in December and January when they first started. Right. The, the, the youngsters are going to go clubbing while they've been vaccinated this summer, so they'll still have lots of protection. Do you think that people are coming in now with COVID having been vaccinated because it's worn off then? Well, that, don't quote me on this, but that's that's one of the big things we've got to think about, isn't it? Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? Because in which case you'd be vaccinating people forever. Because you'd have to say, well, well we, the vaccination you, only works. Know, we vaccinate against flu every year. We're going to vaccinate against COVID every year. Yeah, but I, nobody stops me going anywhere because I don't get a flu vaccination. Yeah, but COVID kills more people than flu. Yeah, no, I get that. But I mean, it's supposed to not kill you if you've got the vaccination, isn't it? Sorry, say that again. Is I didn't it, quite I mean, get... if you've had the vaccination, you're not, you're not supposed to die from it. Well, that's the bit. What in flu, With flu, you're not supposed to die with it. Well, people do every year die from flu, even if they're vaccinated. I'm afraid we haven't got the vaccines perfect. We're doing, I mean, we've done incredibly well with vaccines. I mean, mm. goodness. But going from nothing... To vaccinate. Oh, listen, there's no question about that. It's the one yeah. thing I think you can congratulate the government for doing over this whole period. However, they also said that vaccination was the way out uh, of everything. And it was the answer yes, to, to, to everything. And it's yeah. not a medical problem that we have now. It's a political one. Because if you're going to live with COVID, surely the, polit the politicians have to have uh, the cojones, for want of a better word, to just say, right, this is what we're doing. I mean, in Denmark, they've now declared, for example, that COVID is no, longer, uh, yeah. is, is no longer a dangerous disease. I guess you wouldn't be terribly keen on mandatory vaccination. Mandatory vaccination, definitely not. No, absolutely not. No chance. That's absolutely horrendous. And I'm, so, <laughs> I'm also not in favour. Well, some of, of us are quite keen on that idea. Well, well, get yourself vaccinated, but don't try and I get am. me vaccinated or my children or my children's that's children. That's exactly what I want to get all of you vaccinated. Well, it's not happening. Thank God you're not in charge of it. <laughs>
<laughs> Dr. David Lloyd, thank you very much indeed. Uh, he's from the Ridgeway Surgery, uh, a man that uh, is on the front line of COVID. He wants everybody vaccinated. You see, there's the trouble. There's a lot of people out there who want everybody vaccinated. That is not happening in my world. It's certainly not happening in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's certainly not happening in my children's lives either. We haven't really spoken much about that uh, in this particular uh, week, but we will be speaking about it because they still haven't yet decided. We still can't get any sense out of the politicians, can we? Sajid Javid doesn't seem to know. Uh, We've got Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to know. Boris Johnson doesn't seem to know. I mean, who's going to say we're not going to vaccinate your children? Who will say that in the Conservative Party? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.